Hello and welcome to our very last episode for season two of Repo Radio. Today we are talking about something that I'm a little bit terrified of. It's endocrinology. Endocrinology is nothing to be scared of as (laughs) I literally told a group of students the other day. Um, But it is something that many of us in the reproductive biology community who who do not have the uh, immediate crossover with the endocrinology societies do feel a little bit scared of. So today we are going to unpack some of those things a little bit to try and uh, demystify and de-scare the topic for um, (laughs) all of our listeners. Yeah, luckily we've got some people who actually know what they're talking about who are going to guide us through kind of some of the basics of endocrinology as well as some of the really exciting research that's still being done in this area. You know, I kind of thought that endocrinology was one of those things that it's in a textbook, everybody already knows how it works, there's nothing changing in that field. But I was really quite interested to learn that there's actually a lot of really active research in this area and, you know, there are so many different kind of applications for endocrinology across kind of fundamental reproductive biology right through to applied reproduction as well. No, absolutely. And I think that's something that's come up um, throughout the season that uh, there's an awful lot of topics which uh, I guess undergraduates and probably some of us that uh, are academics in the field as well think, oh gosh, okay, that topic, uh, it's not my, my absolute niche area. I'm pretty sure it's done. I'm pretty sure that uh, there's, there's, there's not a huge amount extra going on there. We've probably settled on that textbook chapter, but it's just not the case. Yeah. Um, I, I think if yeah. nothing else, this season I have learnt and hopefully all of you have learnt that there are exciting new things happening in all of these different areas of uh, reproductive biology and these uh, we keep harping on about textbook chapters Um there's going to need to be some new textbooks written, I think, um, in the in the coming years because there's an awful lot of new stuff. And endocrinology, no different. We are going to learn some fantastic stuff today from our guest, Dr. Kelly Walton, who is a great friend of ours and an absolutely fantastic scientist. And don't forget to stick around for an interview with our ACR, Emily Brulee. That'll be coming up after Kelly's talk. This episode is sponsored by Zoetis, a global leader in animal health. Now, Zoetis are well known in the repro world for making cedars for estrus synchronization. Having put many a cedar in myself, I can tell you how simple they are to use. It's pretty much the only easy part of running a field fertility trial. If you'd like more information, check out zoetis.com.au. We are in for a good one today. We have... A very lovely guest, Dr. Kelly Walton, joining us. She is a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Queensland. Kelly, thanks so much for coming on Repro Radio. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It's such an honour to be able to talk about my research passions with you all. So Absolutely. So to start off with, I'm going to probably break a few people's hearts by announcing that you didn't start in Repro. So tell us a little bit about how you came to be working in this field. Yeah, I um, actually came from quite a different background. So I did my undergraduate degree at Swinburne University in Melbourne and I actually studied biochemistry and psychology of all things. Um, oh, interesting. Which I think actually helps you become a more rounded person <laughs> as you move yeah. into research. Um, And really my PhD sort of centred around developing insect viruses as gene delivery tools for human applications. And so something very different from where I am now. But as part of that um, really training experience, I developed a whole lot of molecular biology and biochemical and virology um, sort of skills that were really applicable across multiple research fields. And that enabled me to apply for a number of 
different sort of postdoctoral positions when I finished. It happened that um, then Craig Harrison um, advertised for a postdoc um, position at Prince Henry's Institute in Melbourne at the time. And his research field was um, transforming growth factor beta or TGF beta proteins. And this is this really big family of protein hormones that have quite a multitude of physiological activities. And so I was really intrigued by the dynamic nature of the research. So, you know, they had proteins that were important for reproduction, but also involved in cancer um, progression and also muscle physiology. So it was quite a dynamic program. And so I really liked that side of things. And so I started off with him working on this large family of TGF-beta protein hormones. And the initial studies were really quite structurally based in which we tried to understand what were the important parts of the protein that determined how they were made and how they exerted their activities. And as a consequence of that knowledge, we then went on to develop loss and gain of function hormones um, that we're now applying to reproductive disorders. So it's really been a journey from biochemistry and molecular biology through to physiology and now to um, applications in human and animal um, areas of reproduction. Love it. And a great story, I think, for our ACRs as well, just to know that, you know, the degree you choose to do, even the PhD you choose to do, doesn't necessarily set your career path in stone. You know, so many people who are so successful started off somewhere completely different and like you kind of developed this skill set that was really diverse and applicable across all of these different areas. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big things I would say for the ECRs out there is I actually came through my PhD without any publications, which I wouldn't recommend Mm. doing because I'm probably (laughs) older than most of the ECRs out there. But I really was determined to um, develop a career in this industry. And so I aligned myself with a good mentor and someone who gave me a go. And I, you know, I didn't take advantage of that. I really worked hard to prove myself in those first two years as a postdoc. And I caught up. So, um, yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the people you align yourself with through your career are really going to determine, you know, where you can go um, in terms of longevity. Absolutely. All right, let's get into the science. Let's, let's start. Let's have you tell us a little bit about your research, kind of what it's focused on, what are the, what are the big problems that you're trying to tackle? My research really over the last 14-plus years has centred on a subclass of protein hormones called the inhibins and activins. And over these 14 years, we've really uncovered a lot of new information about how these protein hormones are made and how they are regulated in terms of their activity. And so now we are introducing mutations for the purposes of understanding how these proteins work, but also for developing targeted technologies for reproductive um, applications. And so the major research goals we have at the moment are really to understand how these proteins coordinate reproductive function in males and females, the contribution of these proteins to human reproductive disorders, so that is um, disorders such as infertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome and menopause. And menopause is a big one for me because it affects 100% Mm. of women, so really interesting (laughs) to work on Um, and lastly how and lastly not but but not leastly is how we can target these proteins to enhance reproductive function in mammals and I think you know by really realizing you know reproduction is something that occurs in every species and so the ideas that you can have in context of human medicine can be applied across multiple species and systems and so That's really where we're going with the work now. So a lot of the audience will have a reasonable idea of what TGF-beta protein is and, you know, that active and and inhibit are involved in the endocrinology of reproduction. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, how many times have I said endocrinology in my career and I'm struggling with it still now? (laughs) Moving on, um, 
Let's assume though that some of the audience does not have any idea what those things are. What's a TGF beta protein and and what are those other two hormones do exactly? Probably the best way to explain the endocrine system is the way I like to, the analogy I like to use is that it is like a complex water slide network, which I feel is very topical now that I'm up in Queensland. <laughs> this is in, I'm interested already. Okay, go. Yeah. Keep going. Water slides. <laughs> so, and so how these systems work is that you have input from one system um, you know, um, at the top, so that might be the top of the water slide, and then you have a portal that delivers messages from that input system and then a target organ at the bottom, And so, so, so which would be the swimming pool at the bottom. I think uh, things don't quite seem to flow through the endocrine um, portals with the speed at which some of us go down the <laughs> But I guess it gives you this idea that you're talking about crosstalk between glands and target organs that can be quite spatially separated. So in the case of the inhibins and activins, they actually coordinate communication between the pituitary in the brain and the gonads, so the ovaries and testes. So the activins are actually made in the pituitary, in the brain, and they drive the release of a um, important hormone that drives egg and sperm production called follicle-stimulating hormone. So that hormone is made by the pituitary. It's pumped out by activin, and it feeds via the portal, which are the blood vessels, to the ovaries and testes um, to regulate egg and sperm production. And as a consequence of um, egg, eggs and sperm developing in the ovaries and testes, inhibin is produced. So activin is produced at the top, inhibin is produced at the bottom, and inhibin actually feeds back via the blood vessels or up the water slide <laughs> to control the activity of activins within the brain. And so you have this crosstalk between the pituitary and the gonads, and so Activin pushes FSH um, out of the pituitary. It promotes production so that it can act on the gonads. And then FSH promotes the production of inhibins, which feeds back to the pituitary to down-regulate activin activity. So the, these two hormones really work to um, drive and suppress FSH production and as a consequence um, influence fertility in women and men. And what makes them TGF-beta proteins? They are TGF-beta proteins because they share a common three-dimensional protein structure or pattern that is similar to all TGF-beta proteins. So they are called um, TGF-beta proteins because of what they look like. Um, activin is called activin because it activates expression of FSH and inhibin because it inhibits. So um, they are appropriately named in terms of FSH production, but the ligands within the family have quite diverse names. There are things like nodal um, bone morphogenetic protein growth and differentiation factors. So it's quite a show bag <laughs> of protein <laughs> hormones that have quite diverse activities but they all share the same protein scaffold. I've, I've always said to the undergrads that we are pretty straightforward with naming things in reproduction. So, you know, <laughs> what does FSH do? It's follicle-stimulating hormone. Right. It stimulates the follicles. <laughs> what's inhibin do? It inhibits. Yeah. Uh, what's progesterone? It's progestational. And sometimes, you know, laying it out like that, you see the light bulbs um, pop pop on there are and we've tried to follow this path in that um we identified a heterodimer of two tgf beta proteins and we called it cumulant because it promotes cumulus cell expansion in developing follicles so we're trying but they're not all named appropriate <laughs> <laughs> so kelly uh most everybody that works in reproduction will be familiar with inhibin uh, many will be familiar with Activin, less people will be familiar with the hormone that you mentioned, cumulin. Can you just talk a little bit more about what cumulin is and exactly what it does? You mentioned cumulus cells and your amazing naming convention, but uh, a little <laughs> bit, a little bit more detail would be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So cumulin is actually a heterodimeric protein comprised of two 
growth factors. So it contains a protein called bone morphogenetic 15 or BMP15 and another protein subunit called growth and differentiation factor 9. So really for a long time, these two proteins were thought to operate independently, um, but recent work by my team at Monash University really uncovered, and this was in collaboration with a team at UNSW involving Rob Gilchrist's lab, that these proteins work um, in unison to really nurture and drive egg production in the ovary. So they really, um, so what they do, they, they have synergistic activities. So when these two proteins come together, the activity is much higher than either of the additive activity of the independent protein hormones. And they actually function to promote the promote the expansion of the cumulus cell matrix around the developing egg. And this is really important in terms of developing eggs that are um, developmentally competent. So that is go on to produce um, healthy embryos and fetuses. So they're really important, those proteins. Um, and in terms of um, technologies, there's a big interest in using this cumulin technology to improve oocyte or egg developmental competence um, for eggs that are going through in vitro maturation. So you can actually take immature eggs, supplement them with cumulin in, um, in vitro media and improve the developmental competence of those eggs. So it's being explored, I guess, as a supplement for IVM and IVF media to promote the production of more developmentally competent eggs. I believe that's in, it's just started clinical trials. I think there's maybe one paper published on it so far in terms of actually being used for clinical IVM in humans. Yes, so definitely moving towards clinical applications in humans um, and we have a collaboration with a team over in Brussels um, geared at this purpose as well. So one thing that kind of confused me a bit when I first started learning about active and, inhi and inhibin is that they're more or less the same protein, right? So do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, so they're highly structurally related. They actually, so activin is made as a protein dimer of two what we call beta subunits, um, whereas inhibin is a heterodimer. It comprises one of the activin subunits and a unique alpha subunit. So inhibins are alpha-beta heterodimers and, in act and activins are beta-beta homodimers. And it's because they share this common subunit that um, inhibin is able to antagonise or block activin activity because it can um, competitively bind to the activin target receptors via that beta subunit. But it does require unique co-receptors um, in which the alpha subunit um, uh, docks onto those. So, um, yeah, they really are quite highly structurally similar, but inhibin actually has no identified biological um, activity in terms of stimulating pathways. The only um, thing it has been shown to do to date um, is really block activin-mediated um, actions. So it works purely as an antagonist whereas inhibin, um, sorry, activin actually has signaling activity. So I'm going to throw a spanner in the works now and bring up a paper that I just, I literally just found by, by Googling when I was trying to prepare a bit for this episode and was talking about the expression of, I think, both activin and inhibin not in the gonads. So it was specifically talking about their expression in the placenta. So do you have any idea what it's doing there and why we'd be seeing these hormones somewhere kind of outside the gonads? Um, so I think activin has been shown that another activin antagonist called folistatin has really important roles in placentation and implantation in the uterus. And in fact, if you remove that activin antagonist called folistatin, there are detrimental consequences for pregnancy in mammals. So I do think they have important roles in supporting um, embryo development in utero. Inhibin actually serves as a biomarker of Down syndrome also. Um, 
So that's one of the tests they do during early gestation. So they do have important roles in terms of specific roles, in terms of um, fetal patterning, I'm less well aware, but they certainly are important, I think, in modulating that fetal to maternal endocrinology. You know, we have models in which um, we have um, messed up the maternal endocrinology, so the inhibitant active and communication in the mothers and the embryos and fetuses don't survive. And so, you know, that, that sort of communication network, and I think that also involves that pituitary communication is really important in both the um, onset and maintenance of pregnancy in mammals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so important roles beyond just kind of gametogenesis as Yeah, well. absolutely. There's some evidence also from um, our collaborators' labs over um, at um, College Station, so Texas A&M, in which they've actually shown that inhibin at super physiological concentrations can actually promote bone growth, so, you know, which suggests it has activities outside of the reproductive axis. We're exploring some non-reproductive activities for inhibin also, and I think this is really important because inhibin is withdrawn at menopause when the ovary stops producing follicles. So understanding how um, inhibin withdrawal might contribute to postmenopausal pathologies is really important in terms of developing appropriate treatments for um, postmenopausal women, particularly if we can develop non-steroidal um, hormone therapies. Right, and that's really interesting, obviously, given that osteoporosis tends to be a big part of menopause as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so clearly uh, pretty important elements of, of reproductive endocrinology, and you've touched on a little bit what happens when things go wrong, but maybe you can talk a bit more about that with, um, you know, the, within the context of, of fertility. So if there's issues with mutations with some of the genes that, uh, that code some of these things, what happens in terms of fertility for, for people or for animals? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the most interesting areas um, to dive into. So there are a number of studies, some of which we've been part of, in which they've identified um, genetic mutations in human patients in the inhibins and activins, and they have been associated with reproductive disorders such as male infertility, premature ovarian um, failure, and um, ovarian cancer. And we have been fortunate to be involved in several of those studies working alongside endocrinologists and andrologists. And our role has really been to, um, at a molecular level, understand if the identified mutations are impacting either the production or the activity or both of these protein hormones. So if you were to have like a, a loss of function mutation in either activin or inhibin, is it likely that you'll just be completely infertile or is there, you know, kind of, I guess, alternative pathways that can cover for any protein that's not working? Yeah, so it depends on which part of the protein it is. So complete loss of the inhibin alpha subunit actually has quite dire consequences and that is because Inhibin has two functions. One is to mop up the available beta subunit that would otherwise form activin um, and then also antagonize activin activity. Now, if you take away the inhibin alpha subunit, all of the available beta subunit forms activin. So what you end up with is an activin production surplus. Um, and so, in fact, they've done studies in mice in which they've deleted the inhibin alpha subunit and those mice... Um, develop gonadal tumours because they have so much activin circulating, activin promotes um, proliferation of somatic cells within the ovaries and testes. The mice all develop um, gonadal tumours, so testes and ovarian tumours. Um, and then because activin levels go up really high, they also succumb to what we call cachectic wasting, so this metabolic wasting syndrome. So um, the mice, I guess, are infertile because they they have reproductive disease, but they're also not very well because they succumb to this cachectic wasting. So, um, you know, removal, I guess, or the inhibit alpha subunit is really important, not just for reproductive health, but also um, for overall physiological health. 
So the activin proteins are also really important, so have important roles in governing fertility, but manipulation of those systems um, only results in more mild consequences for fertility. So it really, I guess, is the inhibin that's the big player in making sure that the ovary is not exposed to or the testes is not exposed to too much FSH. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken predominantly about, you know, human applications and, and human disease here, but, uh, you know, ovulation control is a, a big issue for agricultural species. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the potential applications of your work in that space? Really, the, the lessons that we've learned from our discovery research in inhibin biology have now led us down this path of developing inhibin-targeted technologies as super ovulation agents for um, ruminant animals. And this is particularly important because the leading super ovulation agent, which is pregnant mare's gonadotrophin hormone, um, is not readily available anymore owing to some welfare issues with manufacturing. So there's an industry need for a new agent for this application in animal production. And so with a large team spanning three states and two countries, we are really gearing up to develop inhibin-targeted technologies and I should say multiple technologies specifically for this purpose. So they would be, I think, really um, advantageous to the agricultural industry, but also anything that we can prove that can work well in a large animal model will really accelerate our capacity to take those technologies through to human applications. We've actually got some work that's fairly advanced in developing um, other growth factor technologies as contraceptions for um, companion animals, so cats and dogs. And that work is actually in trials at the moment and has, is showing us some encouraging results. And I think it's a particularly exciting industry to work in because it, you can be quite a long way in terms of discovery research um, with human impact. But, you know, we've really found in working the last couple of years that some of the technologies we've developed within 18 months, they're through to animal testing. And so, you know, it's a really exciting field and a field that I'm moving into, I think, thanks to connections I've formed with Simon DeGraff and Gordon <laughs> Redhouse at a conference a couple of years ago. So this is what I want to say to the ECRs. The one thing that I want you to take home from today is that going to conferences and connecting, whether it's virtually or face-to-face, -face, is really important. But the most important events at those meetings are the social events in which you can have a beer or a soft drink and just have face-to-face -face conversations about why you're doing what you're doing um, and, in the reverse, learn from people about gaps in the market in which you can tailor your work to address. And so I really think um, and that those, you know, um, organic connections are really important in terms of driving your research directions, but also really important in terms of developing peer support. So um, I'm very thankful to have been connected with my agricultural team. Oh, we're very grateful to be connected to you too. No, it's a, it's a great example of what can happen when you you bring researchers together from, um, you know, nominally we're all in, in reproduction, but we do have different skill sets and, and different links and it's meant that, uh, you know, we've got this great discovery grant to, to work on um, and just some incredibly exciting things coming up for the, uh, for the ag agricultural ovulation control space. I'm pumped. I know you are. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, if it's quiet in a couple of years and we just never talk about it again, we'll... <laughs> no, it's going to be great. And what is good, I think, as well, looking at, you know, historically such siloed kind of research areas in terms of reproduction, I think what most people find as well moving from human into the animal space is just how quickly things progress, but then also how quickly once they go to market, they actually get taken up and used in industry. Yeah, I think it's also about um, being engaged um, with the people who really need the technologies. And it's kind of like an, in human medicine, um, having patient involvement. And so I'd really encourage everyone that if you are working on a particular condition that you do identify 
your target audience because it really is what drives you towards, you know, that research goal, knowing that there's someone waiting for you to make a difference. So that's what I've really enjoyed about this is that you can see the enthusiasm and the need for these products. It's very motivational, you know, being engaged with the the end users and uh, and being able to see that your hard work has resulted in a change um, in industry and, and change the, the way people do things and change lives. Um, that is, yeah, uh, well, I personally have found it just a, an incredible experience and sometimes on those days when you think, why on earth are we doing this, you have in the bank, um, at the memory bank, some of those, those moments and, and remember that you are making a difference out there. I think it's also having conversations at the pub you know, particularly in terms of reproductive health, I've had all sorts of community reactions from, well, you don't die from reproductive disease to what the work you're doing is so incredibly important and tears, you know. So I think it's also about having conversations, you know, with the community who are investors, they're taxpayers, about why you're doing the work you are and what the end impact of that work is going to be. And um, I've had really encouraging, you know, and heartfelt stories from the community too that have inspired, you know, my efforts in reproductive biology. Casting our eyes a bit more to the future, what do you think are some of the kind of big unanswered questions that are still in endocrinology? Because it feels a little bit to me, look from the outside looking in, it feels a little bit like, oh, surely we know everything there is to know about hormones and, and how they work? I think there are loads of questions to be answered, particularly around infertility. A lot of the causes of infertility are unknown, particularly in male infertility too, which I think is often overlooked by the community. There's a big role of male fertility. Um, but one of the questions that I am really keen to explore is how can we preserve female fertile lifespan in mammals so you know as the example so um, young girls so females are born with their lifetime supply of egg and from the onset of puberty you start getting um, ovulation and you know cyclic release of these eggs up to um, the the age of um, almost 50 but egg quality really starts to diminish around the mid-30s and that occurs irrespective of health. So obviously if you are um, particularly unhealthy, um, you can accelerate that, um, you know, that those impacts in terms of oversight or egg quality. But if you are really healthy, you're still going to use up all of your eggs by the time you're about 50. Now, this is a, a really, I think, a, a global challenge, and that is because women, because of education and career priorities, which they should absolutely be prioritising, I think we've come a long way. We've still got a way to go in terms of STEM careers and pathways. They're not actually sort of um, deciding to have families until well into their 30s, and by then um, egg quality is already compromised. And so identifying ways to really pause ovarian function in females so that, you know, a 30 or even 40-year-old could have eggs that are as healthy as a 20-year-old would be amazing. Not only would that prolonged fertile lifespan reduce the need for um, fertility interventions, but it also elongates the window to menopause. And so you're going to go through menopause at a much later age as well. So you're delaying the impacts on bone and musculoskeletal function until, until a later time point as well. And so, you know, I think that it's a huge global and, and grand challenge, but it would be absolutely amazing to identify a means to really pause female fertility and then, you know, um, unpause when um, that particular female is, is ready to um, start a family. Just out of interest, I guess, what role do you think hormones might play in that story of being able to preserve ovarian function? The hormones that are the class of hormones I work on are involved in egg release from the ovary. And so we're working on technologies in this space that could actually block um, release of the ovarian, ovarian follicles 
What we don't know yet is if you do pause the ovary, are the eggs that are retained in that female for a prolonged period of time, are they still um, fertilizable? So what we need to make sure is that if you keep them there for longer and, and then, of course, they're going to be exposed to more environmental and dietary insults, are they still healthy when you eventually release them? So, um, but yeah, because these hormones have really important roles in governing egg production, um, definitely we're working on technologies that could serve this purpose in females. Kelly, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that you didn't get a chance to mention? The only thing sort of, I guess, tip of the day thing that I would add at the end is that I'm a really big advocate for early mid-career researchers um, across STEM careers and that the one thing that has really facilitated my progress is connecting with people. And so I think it's really important that you identify the right mentors for you. They don't have to be within your field, but you need a team of mentors. You need someone above you who's at the level you want to achieve and people adjacent to you who are experiencing the same challenges as you at the same time. And then it's also about sort of recognising that the people that you have at home form part of that team too in terms of providing you with the support and opportunity to do your work. So it's really about making sure that relationship is two ways in terms of, um, you know, feedback to your mentors, encouragement um, and acknowledgement of the contribution that they're making to your careers. So get a mentor if you're not sure or you need help with that, please contact me too and I can help to align someone with you. So I can say being a beneficiary of, of Kelly's love of EMCRs, it's very, very beneficial. <laughs> um, I'm very lucky to have her and Simon and so many other people to kind of bounce ideas off, get feedback from. And sometimes it's just that you need somebody to tell you everything's going to be okay. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for joining us. It was so much fun talking to you. No worries. Thank you both. All right, welcome to your last Repro News update for 2022. Naomi, what have you got for us this month? So uh, our fun fact, last fun fact of the year, um, and this one was interesting for many reasons, which I'll divulge later. (laughs) Um, But Taylor, did you know that the elephant shrew and the tenrec are natural super ovulators. Ooh. Now, the tenrec, if you don't know what this animal is, and I, I actually don't. no, I was like, I can't even visualize what a tenrec looks like. <laughs> it's a hedgehog like mammal that are more closely related to elephants and hedgehogs. Oh. It's mental. So I went on a bit of a tenrec, uh, like, what deep dive. It? Deep dive. I like went into deep dive into 10 regs because I'm just like, there is just so many crazy things with these these mammals. It's insane. But we'll go back to the repro fact. So um, 10 regs, uh, when they uh, super ovulate, so they ovulate more than 40 follicles at a time. And so about 75% of the embryos have been found to die off and are reabsorbed during gestation, which I just think is the mm. most ridiculous number. That's awesome. And I feel like every single person now is Googling 10 rec. So how do you... How do you spell it? Tenrec is T-E-N-R-E-C. Okay. I'm also going to Google it after this. Please do. <laughs> okay. So moving on to our conferences, we have one um, actually coming up this month. Um, so this is uh, held by the Society of Endocrinology. Um, so this is in Harrogate, the UK um, on the 14th to the 16th of November. Um, abstracts have closed, um, but registration is open. Um, so definitely a very relevant conference. Um, and we also have, this one's coming up in 2023. So pencil it into your calendar. Um, it's the best of ESHRA and ASRM, so American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Um, I had a read through their preliminary program and it's super interesting. So very interesting topics, but also having sessions that are debates. It's not really something I've come across before, um, but just some really interesting topics. This is in, uh, on March 2nd to 4th, and this is being in, uh, held in Orlando, Florida. And just a reminder as well, don't forget that SRB is happening in November as well. So this month, later this month, hopefully I'll see a lot of you there. If you do come, make sure you come by and say hello. 
Yeah, that one's in New Zealand, right? It is. So it's in Christchurch, New Zealand, which I know a lot of the Aussies are looking forward to what might be their first international trip post-COVID. So it's going to be... Oh, my goodness. Wild. It'll it'll be a great conference. Obviously, this is in combination with the Endocrine Society of Australia as well. So I imagine a lot of endocrinology people will be there as well. 100%. It satisfies all the needs. All Absolutely. The needs. Fantastic <laughs> conference. Um, yes, now for our workshops. So I came across one um, that's held by the Women's Reproductive Services Unit and they hold a free online workshop on the fundamentals of reproductive endocrinology. In terms of our awards and grants, so another one for our reproductive endocrinologists. I'm just... I'm throwing all these things at you. Um, (laughs) So uh, there is an early uh, career research grant um, that is also offered by the Society of Endocrinology. Uh, This is due on the 9th of November. So I know that it's it's quite close, but hopefully a lot of you, it's just more of a reminder if you're looking to put in some grants. Um, So this is a uh, £10,000, I should say, uh, awarded to gain preliminary data uh, before applying for other obviously larger national or international grants or to finalise a research project or to um, resources for a smaller project as well. All right, so for our last publication of the month, um, now this is quite an interesting one that I just came across my radar recently. Um, It is regulatory T cell proportion and phenotype are altered in women using oral contraception. And this was published in Endocrinology. Now, look, I'm not an endocrinologist, nor am, <laughs> nor am I a reproductive immunologist, but I did find this work incredibly fascinating, especially for someone who, you know, has used contraception in their yeah, life. Yeah. Um, just to kind of know, I suppose like there's still a lot of unknowns about mm-hmm. how, like even though have obviously contraception is incredibly important and it's something that should be freely available for everyone to use, but also knowing how these things can affect our body um, and getting more information about that so people can make informed decisions about what they want to do. This piece of work is definitely contributing towards that. Um, So uh, I won't deep dive directly into everything. you just (laughs) got to read the article. Um, But some amazing, I mean, like I love a paper that has some good flow cytometry work. That always makes me very excited. Um, And also the analysis. I mean, I've actually written in my notes top notch. (laughs) because I'm such a stats nerd. I was going to say, Naomi would know she's still the person that I go to with all of my stats (laughs) questions. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just a a really, really interesting paper, very insightful um, and just beautifully brings together both immunology and um, reproductive endocrinology. So I would definitely be giving this one a good read. Thanks so much as always, Naomi, for keeping us up to date. No worries and have a lovely rest of the year, everyone, and a very safe Christmas and New Year. Today I'm speaking with PhD candidate Emily Brule, who actually just defended her thesis earlier this week, um, who is in the Daniel Bernard Lab at McGill University, Canada. So welcome, Emily. Thank you. What are you researching at the moment or what are you planning on researching at the moment, I guess, since you've just finished up what sounds like a very big PhD? The main work, so we look at pituitary regulation of hormones and I was specifically focused on pituitary regulation of reproduction. So I was focused on characterizing a new inhibin B co-receptor in the pituitary and that was the bulk of my PhD. That sounds like in this area that that's been, it's been a bit of a missing puzzle piece. So sort of a lot of the mechanisms around that have been known, but but not so much about that co-receptor. How did you actually go about finding this and sort of targeting this specific area of research? The long-standing drama in the field has been that beta-glycan was this only co-receptor for both inhibin A and inhibin B. And it wasn't until recent work from our lab that showed us that um, in fact, beta-glycan was obligate co-receptor for inhibin A, but not inhibin B. So we started to look for a possible inhibin B co-receptor. And really um, what led us to the one we discovered, TGFBR3L, was single-cell RNA sequencing data from most pituitaries. So this was relatively new in the field. And what we noticed was that there is this one gene, TGFBR3L, that was highly enriched in pituitary gonadotrope cells. Um, No one had ever 
researched this protein before and just based on the name of the protein its sequence identity we really thought that it was in fact an inhibitor co-receptor so that's really how we got it got started on this project coming down to the end of your phd now and really finishing up uh are there any moments across that either scientific or personal that really stand out as career highlights so far well one thing was just like working on an orphan protein that no one had ever heard of had ever worked on before like that was super exciting another career highlight was really i mean pre-pandemic attending conferences and just networking and getting to know other scientists in the field kind of expanding learning what other people are working on and getting out of the little our little pituitary reproduction bubble and really expanding and seeing what everyone else is working on. Now that you're finishing up, do you know what's next for you? Have you got any idea where you want to head or are you just taking a bit of a breather after what sounds like a very interesting and and packed doctorate? Yeah. So currently I'm doing an internship at a biotech company here in Montreal. Um, and I'm going to work for this biotech company full time. So really moving more towards biotech and industry and learning more about that side of science. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's fantastic. It would be nice to be able to apply all those skills straight away. For PhDs that are getting towards the end of their PhD and are thinking about sort of taking a similar pathway or, or heading over to industry in biotech, say, have you got any advice for them on on how to get things like internships and how to sort of reach out to what's really not an academic network? Really at conferences, like networking, like a lot of scientists at these biotech companies will attend conferences. So really, if you can have the opportunity to network and ask um, about their companies, about life in their companies. Um, and I mean, I was fortunate that McGill had an internship program where they allowed you to go and do an internship for up to three months. That was really a way to get to know the industry and also get a foot in the door. Well, good luck with everything. Um, and congratulations again on, on finishing up your PhD so recently. Uh, and thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Well, Tyler... The end of an episode and the, the end, end of, of another an season. <laughs> the end of an era. Well, the end of the 2022 era. Yeah. But I know that we'll be back in 2023, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Was there anything in particular that struck you from this episode? Well, first of all, congrats on your discovery project that's all about endocrinology. Look, look who is saying they don't know anything about endocrinology. Been Absolutely. <laughs> and look, I'm not sure whether I've shared this before with the audience, but um, the very uh, one of the very first episodes that we recorded, I got my wife to listen to. And uh, I, I think at the beginning, I said, oh, I don't know much about this topic. And she mentioned that that was very off-putting and that if I suggest <laughs> that I don't, that I'm not an expert on something, then why on earth would anybody listen to anything that we spoke about? So I've probably sold myself slightly short here. Yes, yeah. I do know a little bit about endocrinology <laughs> and I'm very excited about this uh, this project that uh, Kelly and myself and uh, two others have, have just started. So um, big things for agriculture and hopefully some uh, some new things in the uh, in the pipeline for uh, therapeutics and, uh, and treatments for, for ovulation rate, but uh, that's a few mm-hmm. years away. Oh well, it's good to be good to dream big, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, and it's great for uh, for animal science as well um, mm. to be in amongst that uh, that discovery project uh, action, yeah. which has been uh, quite a rarity in in recent years. But we digress. Look, I think two fantastic um, guests that we've had today, and look, I think we've been. Hashtag blessed by an awful <laughs> lot of fantastic guests through the year. Um, I've enjoyed every episode. I know you've enjoyed every episode and I hope that everybody at home or at work has enjoyed our episodes as well. It's been a lot of fun making them. Yeah, make sure you, if you're not already, so follow us on social media and let us know what your favourite episodes were, you know, if there was anything that you were like, oh, I listened to this episode, I learned something new. Let us know what it was. For me, I think my personal favourite 
is going to come as no surprise. It was the Seminole Plasma episode. It was it was straight fire. <laughs> it was anything to do with Seminole Plasma is just the best. It's I mean, true. Is there any more amazing biological fluid in the world? No. Uh, spoiler, no. Uh, there is <laughs> there is not. So if you haven't listened to that one, definitely jump back on and uh, and stream that. You uh, you won't regret it. I also loved the uh, the dairy episode. Um, always love listening to uh, to Matt speak. Uh, I think he's one of the most dynamic lecturers, one of the most dynamic um, scientific presenters that I've I've ever seen, and uh, he's certainly someone that uh, I I remember from uh, when I was a, a PhD student who was just uh, incredible to listen to. So I very much enjoyed uh, listening to him speak and looking forward to his stewardship over the next four years of the uh, the International Congress on Animal Reproduction. So, look, I imagine that a lot of you that are listening, um, that Congress is one that is familiar to you. But uh, if it isn't, uh, definitely check that out because um, all of the researchers pretty much that we've um, spoken to this this season, um, they head along to that meeting every four years and it's a, it's a great place for networking and for, um, for being exposed to some of the cutting edge science. So um, we've just had one this year but uh, and you'll have to wait for four years to the, to the next one but <laughs> um, it is something to keep your eye on. So we've tried to bring you a little bit of everything this season. I think we've we've touched on human, we've touched on ag, we've touched on companion animals for the first time as well. Uh, we really just tried to make it as diverse as possible. So hopefully you've enjoyed it. Uh, we really look forward to bringing you another season next year. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. But for now, we just want to say thank you very much to all of our guests and our sponsors for this season. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us. For more information about our guests today or Repro News, check out the show notes for this episode on our website. If you've got a question for our next guest, send us an email or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Repro Radio is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Pinney, and executive produced by Simon DeGraff. Repro News by Naomi Bernicic, ECR Spotlight Reporting by Kelsey Poole, production assistance by Jess Rickard, Maddie Vanderhoek and Sophie Waugh, and audio design by Dylan Gerrily. There was ever a time for background music, this would be it.